Amen. Thank you, Jack. Uh, just to let you know about a couple things in terms of church planting. Uh, the session met this past week, and as you know, it's been kind of a long journey in trying to find someone who would be interested in planting a church, either in Marietta or Ackworth. And uh, it's just been, we, the Lord has not provided anyone. However, the Lord has put us in contact with two different people who are planting churches, one that is in Marietta, which is a Chinese church, a man named James Lee, uh, who is ordained in our presbytery now. And so we made the decision to give part of the money that we had set aside for church planting to him and his church plant as it's up and going and meeting at Hope Presbyterian Church. And then also uh, a young man named Stephen Gilchrist, who is at Westside in Atlanta, is planting a church in my old hometown of Fairburn, Georgia. And so I'll be going down to meet with him uh, and let him know that we made the decision to support him as well. And so we, we recognize if, if the Lord's not bringing us somebody, he, if he's bringing us other folks who are doing it, let's support them uh, in the meantime uh, until we get the opportunity to invest in someone ourselves. So uh, that's worthy of some applause, I believe. Not for us, but for the Lord's provision. Think about it. The Lord was, we've been praying for one guy. He really brought us two that are doing two different works in two different areas that is much needed in both of the areas where they're planting those churches. Also, Chris this morning is filling in for Jody Stancil. Uh, you could be praying for him. He's the, he's the pastor of Riverside Community Church. His grandmother went home to be with the Lord this past week. I think they had their, her funeral yesterday. And so Chris was able to step in uh, and help Jody out this Sunday. So do be praying for the Stancil family. All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Uh, This morning, we will go through the entire chapter as, yet again, more of the story is unfolding for us. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with, is that God calls us to use the means of grace and remain faithful in obedience while we await his most wise response to our distress. Let me say that again. God calls us to use the means of grace and remain faithful in obedience while we await his most wise response to our distress. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. 
And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we step into this, we know the background for chapter 4 is that Haman has issued this heinous edict to annihilate the Jews throughout the entire Persian kingdom, which, we need to be reminded, would include Jerusalem where they are rebuilding the temple. And it would include, as Mordecai has pointed out, Queen Esther herself and anyone who is a Jew. And so this pogrom that has been issued is soon to take place. Uh, And so Mordecai, as he gets wind of it, he expresses extreme distress. Notice, Notice he is reflecting the gravity of the situation, right? So he does what is their culture to do, which is to be in sackcloth and ashes and to cry out in a very public way. And so when Esther says to him, hey, you're going to get killed doing this, she doesn't yet know. That's very important. When, when Esther first gets wind of Mordecai's situation, she doesn't yet know about Haman's pogrom. She doesn't yet know the edict has gone out. She knows nothing of this. And so when she sends him clothing and he rejects, what he's trying to message to her is that this is serious. The gravity of the situation is we are going to lose our lives. I would rather lose my life wailing in the king's gate for what is coming than to, than to put on nice clothes and pretend like nothing is happening. And so that's the background for this particular chapter. And there's much that we need to see in terms of God's presence, even in his absence. And so uh, the first thing that I want to ask you as we step into this, and this is a question you may say, I think we kind of get this question a good bit. Well, it's a good question to be reminded of because we often find ourselves in distressing circumstances, do we not? And we oftentimes, unfortunately, instead of running to the throne of grace, run from the throne of grace. And so which way do you run when you are in distress? What's the first thing that you turn to? Is it uh, some sort of substance? Food, alcohol, cigarettes. I sound Baptist all of a sudden. Cigarettes, dancing, gambling. Uh, no, not that kind of stuff. Like, where do, where do you turn immediately for comfort? 
Like that first move, that's your natural inclination, right? And that tells you something about what's going on in your head and heart, about what you're kind of training up. What's interesting is you may say, this, this sermon sounds a lot like the sermon from the end of chapter 2 where it says we're to be uh, faithful uh, and obedient in our waiting. Well, this has now added the layer of distress, right? Think about the wisdom literature itself, of which Esther has much to interact with. The book of Proverbs is calling essentially for us to be obedient and wise under normal everyday circumstances. The book of Job comes along and says, now you must be faithful and obedient under extremely distressing circumstances. There is a difference, not in how we respond, but in how it's going to land on us and what we need to be prepared for. So this is Esther under, and Mordecai, under extreme distress, right? It was one thing to do it at the end of chapter 2 when Esther's become queen. Uh, Mordecai has a voice in the gate. He's been celebrated for exposing the assassination plot, right? Everything looked pretty good at that time. Now, things don't look so good. So, which way will they run? That is the question. The question is also to us. Which way do we run? when we find ourselves in distressing circumstances. Not only which way, but how. How do we run? How swiftly do we come to the throne of grace to receive what we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace? And then, and then who do you invite into that process with you? How often do we hide kind of what's going on that, that we're distressed about because of either bad theology, like thinking you may have done something to deserve it, or not wanting other people to know that you're struggling? Right? So, so community, while community is not necessarily considered a means of grace, it is a means by which grace and mercy are applied to us, is it not? It is what oftentimes reminds us to use the various means of grace. In fact, sometimes they use its community that is praying much like the Holy Spirit on our behalf. They're groaning and saying things that we, we've grown too tired to say, right? And so we see all of that here in uh, chapter 4. And so notice uh, that as Esther begins to understand what's happening, uh, and it's kind of frustrating almost that if Mordecai just put the nice clothes on, they could have cut out the middleman and just talked directly. But you got to send a message and send a message and send a message, and you're kind of like, clock's ticking here, people. This edict has already gone out. We need to get moving. But there's a sense in which there's a confidence between Esther and Mordecai that the Lord will move, right? They can, they can take some measure of time to get this worked out and to properly use the means of grace at their disposal because they know that the Lord is at work. Remember from chapter 3, the casting of lots. They cast lots on the eve of Passover, which for a Jew, they would have been looking at that going, we've been here before. We've been on the shores of a watery grave before. We have stood before the open casket of Sheol, and the Lord has delivered. He will do so again. And so, here we have Esther making it clear to Mordecai. There's a law that if I try to go in and just talk to the king, like it didn't work like that, I will die. And notice Mordecai's sharp response back to her. He says, well, you're going to die anyway. Wouldn't it be better die, to die trying to do something to save other people than for you to just die because of your fear? Now think about that for a second. For, for many of us, what is it that we're really afraid of oftentimes? 
in our distress? Why are we afraid to come before the throne of grace? Why are we afraid to invite other people into our struggle to help us along the way? What is it that we actually are afraid of? And that's a question I can't answer in singularity for us, but it is a question worthy of you wrestling with, right? So if God, who is much wiser than us, has given us all this banquet of things for us to use, why do we make so little use of it? Well, some of it may be something that we talk about around here quite a bit is we're poorly practiced when there's not distress, right? So when there's distress, you're not going to turn to something that you haven't been using more than likely, right? You're not going to, how many of you start new habits when you're stressed out? That's a recipe for disaster, is it not? That's a good way to have to, you know, whether it's Cal Newport or the person that wrote the, the Habits book, all these different habit stacking kind of things. You don't wait until you're under distress and, and kind of under the gun. It's what you've been practicing along the way that's going to set you up well for when it gets hard or weird or whatever it may be. And so as we often say, you have no idea. I have no idea how our lack of a devotional life right now, that includes prayer, worship, reading scripture, all of, the, all of the means of grace, how lacking in that right now is setting you up for failure three months, six months, a year down the line, right? You gotta start where you are. You can't feel beat up about that, but it is very important that we see the pattern here. They were told in chapter two, be faithful and obedient in your waiting when things are going well. Why? Because distress was coming. The Lord in his providence knew what was on the horizon and what they were going to need to turn to very quickly when time mattered the most and their lives were on the line. So notice what Esther does. You, you have that famous verse that often gets quoted to us out of context. For such a time as this, you may have been placed here at Christ Community Church at 1030 on a Sunday morning. I think that's probably an over-application of that. It's not a terrible application, but I think it's to maybe put too much weight on the matter. She, in particular, think of all that she's gone through. Think of the weight of how it would have landed on her for her uncle to say to her, what it took for you to get to where you are for such a time as this. So he's essentially not saying it is in the very positive way that we often say it. He's essentially saying, have you gone through all this suffering for nothing? Can it not be used ultimately for the good of others? Because you got to understand, Esther, well, yes, she's the queen. She's not living in a hovel. But what did she have to endure at the king's hand? And notice there's a little bit of a clue here. She says, the king hasn't even called for me in the last 30 days. I don't have access. In fact, there's some argument that it was years. She was just referring to the most recent month, the most recent events, that the king had actually not engaged with her in a number of years. So the, the impact and the weight of what he's saying is, don't let your suffering be wasted. Don't let the Lord's providence and ability to work these things out be lost to you. And so notice what she does. She gets petulant and pouty and angry, right? No, she doesn't. She says, okay, if this is what we need to do, then we're going to turn to the means of grace. I want to call for a, a citywide fast among my people for three days, night and day. Don't eat, and we're going to join you in it. And here's what's interesting. Who would they have been, what would the purpose of a fast actually do to help their circumstance if God is not here? 
What, what power is it that they're going to invoke? Is it that when you're slimmer, you think better? I don't know about y'all, but uh, being hungry for three days is not when my best decision-making comes along, right? Really, it's not. Uh, in fact, if you see me do a three-day fast, that first meal is going to be a very poor choice, I can guarantee you. Uh, because I, th I think I'm ready for something I'm not ready for. So in essence, though God's name is not invoked, to whom would they be weeping and lamenting and fasting to if it is not Yahweh? If they were not crying out to someone that they thought could help them. And notice even what Mordecai says. He says, look, Esther, even if you don't, it will come from another place. Now, it's interesting to me. Scholars have fallen all over themselves trying to figure out if that actually means something. It does. It means that if Esther doesn't help out, then the Lord, which is oftentimes when it's referred to from another place as a reference to Yahweh, most times in the Old Testament, then Yahweh would act in some way, form, or fashion. That he is not bound by the obedience of any single individual. Don't you know that that's good news? That's good news to us, because how many of you have failed? The room's full of us, right? Uh, we all have. And if our failure was the ultimate dictator, in fact, why do we live as if our failure way thinking that we carry the kind of weight that we carry? Which allows us to come boldly before the throne of grace because that is exactly why the floor is always open to us. It's what Jesus died to, to, to grant us, right? Is that we would always have what we needed in a fallen world as mix of saints, sinner, fumbling and bumbling as we do, the Lord still holds all things together. And praise God that that is true for us. And so Esther submits herself to a process. And notice what she says. She sounds a lot like Daniel. Does she not? As he goes into the, or actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're told to go into the fiery furnace, and they say, well, God may or he may not deliver us. How many of us, that that is our energy, when we know it's the right thing to do, when we know what we ought do in the midst of our distress in terms of uh, using the means of grace to cry out to the Lord, inviting people into that, uh, why is it that we all so often try to hold God hostage for a result instead of trusting that he's ultimately wiser than we are? Listen, I'm not throwing stones from a glass house here. I, I, I am in that space. I can't tell you how many times I have poutily responded to whatever the Lord had going on, thinking that maybe he would come chasing after me because that's kind of what he does, right? How often are you the same way? If the Lord doesn't grant you what you've been praying for, what you've been asking for, deliver you as quick as you would like, you withhold something from him. As if he, creator of the universe, who has everything he could ever need, could somehow feel the deficit. Only you, only I, can feel the deficit. And so we would be wiser instead to make use in times of distress of the means of grace that hopefully we had been practicing all along for it to become more second nature to us to turn to and recognize that it is up to the Lord to decide which way this thing is going to go whatever it may be. This is not on a smaller scale. Christ Community Church, we could uh, um, uh, get kind of petulant about the fact that we don't have a building yet. 
Because we see other churches seem perfectly capable of coming up with some kind of brick and mortar. What seems to be our categorical problem? Is it that God just really don't like us very much? Is it some hidden sin? Or is it that God is forming us, particularly not because he loves us more or less than other people, but this is our story. This is our formation. Think about some of what the Lord has helped form in and through this process. We have become an insanely generous group of people, right? Who, who, who really seek the opportunity to bless others when the argument could be made, every penny ought to be going toward brick and mortar. I would rather us cultivate a spirit of generosity so that when we find ourselves in that much more expensive to run day-to-day brick and mortar, we would not lose that energy. And we have had the benefit of seeing the Lord work in even circumstances that look as bad as this parquet dance floor, which some of you may be like, I think it's endearing. I don't. Uh, And this lovely backdrop, right? This is just, this isn't far from the hostage video that we filmed day one of the COVID. Like, I feel like I'm living in that loop, Groundhog Day, right? But praise be to God that we have seen, with this backdrop, a number of our students come to the table, a number be baptized. In fact, part of the reason the room is empty is why? Who's missing? High schoolers, which means y'all are going to have to put some chairs away when you get done. You need to give thanks for them, right? And so, so let's not forget that the Lord, in, in every circumstance, is writing a particular story for a particular people that's always for his glory, always for our joy, and always for the life of the world. Notice that while Esther and them are weeping for their circumstance, they're ultimately weeping for the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because you understand, like I said, Jerusalem is under Persian rule. And if they wipe the Jews out now, What does that mean for the future of the life of the world? It is over. But we have a sovereign God who ensures that that's not going to happen. And we have that same promise. That's one of the reasons we sang, did Christ over sinners weep? Do we actually weep for, fast for, the people in our spheres of influence who don't know Jesus? Who don't yet know that there's a king who loves them, a father who loves them? Is it only in our distress that we are to lean on the means of grace? Or are we called to also recognize the distress of our neighbors about us and to offer the same means, the same opportunity, the same uh, comfort that is afforded to us who are indwelt by the Spirit? And so this is an important thing for us to recognize that Esther, she could have just tried to keep it to herself because remember, she's not told anybody she's a Jew. She might, she could have almost convinced herself, I think I can get out of this. I think I can make it through the eye of the needle. Now, Mordecai's threat probably puts that on on tilt, right? It's a good warning, is it not, to not be selfish in this circumstance. So she's, she's crying out and putting herself at hazard for other people. Notice Jesus did the same in the garden. Again, our assurances of pardon have been walking us through uh, up to the crucifixion and the resurrection ultimately. But notice, if Jesus doesn't cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane, if Jesus doesn't uh, acquiesce to the will of God, we aren't here. That's why that was an assurance of pardon, because Jesus said, 
not my will, but your will be done. Notice in his distress, which way he turned. Think of how easy it would be to turn away from the one who's essentially asking you to die. He doesn't. Notice the disciples. It says they were asleep for what? What was it that put them to sleep? Sorrow. They were exhausted. And yet the Lord said, no, you, you need to be using the means of grace because temptation is nigh. The same warning is to us as well that we need to be a people who are making use of the means of grace. Various ones of us find ourselves in varying levels of distress, right? And this is where we need to hold each other up. This is where we need to invite each other in to pray for one another, to build each other up, to comfort, to point to the gospel, uh, and to be able to sustain one another. Praise be to God that we have these gifts. Listen to what David Firth says about this passage. He says, The book of Esther assumes God's activity, evident in God-shaped holes in the narrative. That's what we've been talking about. There's God-shaped holes. To whom are they fasting? To whom are they lamenting? To whom are they crying out to? What deliverer could come against the Persian Empire if it's not God from within? Right? And these become apparent by a close reading of the text. Somehow, in the faithful action of God's people, we discover the working of God for his people. Did you hear that? This is still true today, right? As we conduct ourselves faithfully, not perfectly, faithfully in the various spheres of influence where the Lord has sovereignly placed us, even the distressing ones, there's opportunities for others to see the Lord at work and be drawn to him. This isn't just about us. So I ask you, when in distress, which means of grace do you make use of? Means of grace being prayer, fasting, worship, devotion, um, the Lord's table, remembering your baptism. Uh, I would, I'm not adding community to the means of grace, but they're a help to the use of the means of grace. Worship, certainly, Right? How often do we withhold our worship from the Lord because things aren't going well? And do you think that you could get God's attention more by disobedient pouting as you distance yourself from him or by faithful lament as you draw near to him? We have to confess here that culturally we of the West and we in particular of the white West don't do this real well. Lament is not a big uh, part of our thought process. We're high on productivity. We want things that can make, that give us results. We want things that are positive. We want things that are exalting. But oftentimes, lament is a different language. Lament is crying out. Lament is being humbled. Lament is being weak and reminded of your frailty. You're not God. I'm not God. And we would do well uh, given our circumstance. If you were offended by what I said about the West, prove me wrong. Uh, and let's have a conversation about it. It's not a condemnation. It's just uh, uh, recognizing the circumstance, right? There's been reams written that we in the West don't know how to grieve. Think about this question. You've had someone pass very near to you. About a week later, somebody says, how you doing? What do you say? Doing fine. What? Or I, I'm, I'm almost through it. Almost through what? 
right? Like if we really thought about some of the ways in which we communicate with one another in our grief, we would recognize how oftentimes we are robbing ourselves of something that God gave us as gift to remind us and, and call for a longing for a world to come that is coming when Christ returns, for a greater longing for all things to be made new, for a greater longing for the very resurrection itself, what the Easter season is about. And how often are we using language that ultimately is almost dismissive of the great cost, right? I'm always moved by the fact that Jesus bellowed before the tomb of Lazarus. The statement is like a lion roaring in grief. Now, why would he do that? He knows he's going to make Lazarus walk out of that tomb. What is he bellowing against? Death itself. Death itself because this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he will lay down his life and take it up again so that death would no longer be our master. That death would no longer have the final say as to who and whose we are. And amen. That this is our Christ. And amen, after having heard that, we get to partake and taste and see of the Lord's goodness. That we are reminded of what Christ did for us in and through the meager elements of the Lord's table. A little bit of bread and a little bit of juice. What a gift it is that the Holy Spirit takes that and, and does some sort of spiritual alchemy to nourish us in our faith. So if you this morning are here and you are in some form of distress... This is a beautiful opportunity for you to take and eat and be nourished and give thanks to the Lord that this, in the power of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ, can help you to endure yet further for the glory of God, for your joy, and for the life of the world. If you're here this morning and, and you just feel like you've just messed up more than you've done right, but you know you need Jesus as Savior, this, this meal will help keep you going, will help push the devil's words at bay that try to whisper low into your ear and say, look at what a profound failure you are. No, in fact, this declares you are more than victors in Christ. We are tasting of the very goodness and the very finishedness of the work of Christ. So meditate on these things as you receive. And remember when he gave this meal. It was right before his friends were about to fail him more than anybody in this world could ever fail him personally. You and I don't have the capacity to fail Christ in the way that Peter did, right? We don't have the opportunity to deny him in his humanity as he was here, as he was going to his death. We don't have the capacity to, to, to fail him in the ways that the others did as they were scattered like sheep and ran for their lives, and feared for their lives, and forgot everything he said. Praise be to God that we fail him far less than they could have, and yet he wanted them to know what he wants us to know, which is this, that he took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given as gift for you. What gift? The gift that would satiate the wrath of God of which our sin deserved justly deserved, that it was satiated fully in the brokenness of his body, and that we would never again have to fear being before the Lord our God. That's Romans 5. We stand at peace with the Lord our God because of the finished work of Christ.
Romans 8, there's now therefore no condemnation for you because of this gift. Amen? And then as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it up. He said, this, this is the cup of the covenant, the new covenant, my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. As soon as they heard the word new covenant, they would have been reminded of passages from Ezekiel and Jeremiah that, that proclaimed to them that you now have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. You now have the capacity to obey the Lord, not perfectly, but in a way that brings him joy and you joy. You no longer have to fear. You can, in the power of the resurrection, go forward into the world knowing you are loved so that you can love both God and neighbor in return. So if the elders who are helping serve this morning go ahead and come forward, just want to remind you, if you are not a professing believer, if Christ is not your Savior, at this time, let the meal pass you by. Let it, let it go by. Uh, and if you would like to have a conversation about that or wrestling with some of that, we would love to talk with you. Uh, and if you are harboring some sort of uh, unforgiveness towards someone, if you think you've got the ability to say who ought to be in hell and who ought not, you also have to let the meal pass you by at this time. And again, that's something we would love to talk with you about. But if you are struggling in any way, shape, or form to honor Jesus with your life, notice I said struggling, then you are welcome at this table. No matter the condition that you're in this morning, you need the nourishment to help you continue to seek to strive to obey under distress or to build your obedience for when distress might come. All right? Uh, when you do receive, we will take and eat together as family. Uh, and so make sure you hold the elements until they've all been passed out. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you that in the garden, as Christ was sweating essentially drops of blood in his agony. You sustained him with an angel, and he was willing to do your will, even though he asked if the cup would pass. And even your divine no did not keep him from turning to you. May the same be nourished in and true for us. That when we don't hear what we necessarily want or you don't react as quickly as we would like, that we are nourished in the person and work of Christ to continue in faithful obedience, honoring you. God, thank you that we have these means of grace. May they minister to our souls in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.